Hi, welcome back. You have no idea how bad it is when you aren't here. Uh, it is, it is, it's dead uh, without students. And, and I must say that uh, probably 95% of the reason that I took this call was the students. And so when you're not here, I kind of wonder why I'm here. Uh, myself. You're the reason we exist at Tyndale. So, uh, But while you were away, I visited our daughter in Edmonton and our grandchildren. We have an, uh, one daughter. Uh, she's decided we have one child. She has decided that her role now is to populate the world. So at a very early age, she got married, and we now have four grandchildren. Uh, and I've told them that's it. Uh, there aren't, we don't have room in our condo for even four, so that's it. Um, we visited Carla's parents in Regina. A tough visit. Some of you know what this feels like uh, as her mother is beginning stages of Alzheimer's and struggling with some of those things. Uh, then I went to Phoenix. Um, supposedly to attend a meeting of presidents. Uh, you know, they never have those meetings somewhere like Winnipeg in the winter. Have you ever noticed they're, they're always in Florida or they're somewhere else? And so we were in Phoenix. While you were away as well, uh, 20 children and six adults were killed in Connecticut. A man set fire uh, a house in a suburban neighborhood in Rochester, and then waited on a hill as the fire trucks drove up and basically picked off three of them with an assault rifle. The Syrian government continued to kill innocent citizens. A 23-year-old woman in New Delhi, India, stepped onto a bus, was accosted, was assaulted, and raped numerous times before she was thrown off the bus and left naked on the street. She died. A terrorist went into a church area that I have been in myself numerous times in Kenya, I threw a grenade into the church meeting and killed a number of people. And a mother killed her child, a young infant, here in Greater Toronto on New Year's Eve. And all the time that this was taking place, we were singing songs of hope and carols that spoke of peace on earth, goodwill to all people. And if you were at all awake <laughs> during this time, all aware of what was going on in your surroundings, you must have wondered about the irony of it all. You must have wondered about the sad lack of reality that even after 2,000 years after the birth of Christ, peace is not yet a reality in our world. If you picked up the newspapers, all sorts of articles were being written after the Sandy Hook massacres by people who only can evoke the name of Jesus at times like this when they want to ask the question, where was God? 
in this? It's a fair question. I ask it as well at times. Even in the sureness of my faith and all of the theological frameworks that I have in understanding, I do ask that question. But I also find it fascinating. Isn't it odd that people ask that question then, but they never ask the question other times, where is God? Well, if you understand this Christmas season, then you'll get a sense of what it was like just before the birth of Christ. There had been a silence for a long time. A matter of fact, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, scholars often discuss this time in this intertestamental period, they call it, in which there seems to be a strange silence from God. God, there were no prophets and all of those kinds of things. I remember when I was at seminary, I told this story at, at the seminary chapel, I think a couple years ago. When I was studying at Fuller Seminary, um, and I, at that time I wanted to do my Ph.D. in New Testament. And, and if you wanted to do your Ph.D. in New Testament, you had to get close to this this New Testament scholar at Fuller, whose name was George Ladd, who at that time was the guy when it came to New Testament studies. And if you could get his recommendation, you could go anywhere. I wanted to go to Aberdeen, Scotland to study under I.H. Marshall. And I was desperate to get there. And likewise, a number of my friends were as well. So the first class that I took with him, I started to suck up. If you want to get to graduate school, it helps. And, and so uh, the class was a fascinating class. If any of you have ever done uh, Greek exegesis, the first, the first hour was uh, asking questions out of his book that he had written called A Theology of the New Testament. And then the second hour was he would just simply get you to exegete uh, and translate Greek New Testament. So he'd say, Mr. Nelson, verse 1, and you'd have to translate and do all of these things. It was very imposing. It was the first time I saw a young future pastor cheat. Uh, he had the interlinear underneath his Bible. And, some, and Dr. Ladd said, verse number three, and the guy goes, pushes it. And he translated it, and Dr. Ladd says, very good. Sounds strangely like the NIV. <laughs> But the first hour was the asking of this question. And in his textbook, he talks about this intertestamental period. And he asks the obvious question, or I ask the obvious question, because he talks about the silence of God during this period, just before the birth of Christ. What seemed to be the silence of God. And I ask the obvious question. Why do you think, right? Why do you think God was seemingly silent during that time? Now, I did it in a very trying, I whipped off my glasses and I quoted Dr. Ladd. I said, Dr. Ladd, I've read this fascinating first chapter of this book. Uh, amazing. I, I, it was, I was spellbound through the whole thing. And, and then I came to this passage and I read it to him and I said, and I thought to myself, Dr. Ladd, why? Why was God silent? Dr. Ladd, I found out this is how he answered many questions like that. He said, I don't know. That's a stupid question. 
I'm not God. It turned out that, that he often would say that. He didn't know. He wasn't afraid to say he didn't know. But this was a time of silence, and it seemed like God was not speaking, and there was a sense of waiting and anticipation, and then, bam, the birth takes place. Like the shattering of a window in the middle of sleep at night, if you've ever had that happen, where all of a sudden, boom, and you're kind of thrust up out of bed. In my Christmas letter to you, I quoted Bruce Coburn. He puts it this way, like a stone on the surface of a still river, driving the ripples on forever. Redemption rips through the surface of time with the cry of a tiny babe. This baby, this birth, this moment shatters the silence in a kind of incredible way. And in it, all of a sudden, is this idea of new possibilities in the midst of what seems like silence. And that's why Simeon explains it best to us during this time. He kind of takes this baby. We don't know much about Simeon. We just know he was a priest. He was devout and he was faithful. He was a man who had been given a promise that he would not die until he met the Messiah, God's chosen one. In other words, he was a man waiting for years. He had performed this sacred rite of circumcision, the signs of God's covenant relationship with the people. But all of a sudden, this baby is placed in his arms, as so many have been before. Now think of this. In the silence, bam, he knows this one's different. This isn't just any baby, Simeon says. And he knows it. Perhaps just for a moment, he sees this baby and he feels the contrast between his life and his world and all that this life of Jesus will represent. All of a sudden, he imagines the possibilities, life as it should be, life as it could be. And then at the same time, comparing it to life as it really is, love as it really is. Hark the herald angels sing. Twenty people have been killed in Connecticut. So he cries out in the passion of all of his own discovery. And he says this. This baby, he says, will be the falling and the rising of many. The salvation. Notice not your personal salvation. God's salvation, it says here, of the world. Your inner thoughts will be revealed. In verse 32, he says, This baby will be a revealing light. In 35, he says, A sign spoken so that thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And you know what? You may want to trivialize the birth to this kind of little baby. I often show a, a picture in one a, a, a clip from Talladega Nights when, uh, what's his name, the actor? Yeah, Will Ferrell uh, praised to little baby Jesus. I don't know if you've seen the movie. It's a dreadful movie, but I use that as an example of how we have, how we have trivialized 
our understanding of faith, how we, we've made him a little baby. This little baby interrupts our life, Simeon says. And that's what happens over and over again at Christmas. In the midst of all of this stuff that is going on, and the fair question, where is God? Christmas and the baby, Jesus, says, look at Jesus. In the light of all of these horrid events, look at the possibilities of what Jesus presents. First of all, he causes us to see ourselves, our need, our indulgence, our loneliness, our anger, our hurt. The events such as the ones in Connecticut and around the world this Christmas take place because of the kind of world that we live in. And they are contrasted as they were this Christmas season with the promise of the birth. Reality and possibility come together like that. One of my favorite writers is an old eccentric guy. He's dead now, but G.K. Chesterton. And he says this, I do not minimize the scale of the miracle as some of our milder theologians have done. He's talking about the birth. Instead, I have deliberately dwelt on that incredible interruption. Isn't that a great way to describe Jesus? An incredible interruption. Jesus, he says, as a blow that broke the backbone of history. A miracle that could have shook the world, but it did not shake the world it steadied the world. Simeon says he'll be a revealing light, showing things as they really are. Because it's only as you see things as they are that you can name them for what they are. I mean, why is it that people are so surprised when evil rears its head in our world? Is it the illusion we prefer that we live in a kind of evilless world? I mean, this is why I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. This revealing light helps me understand the world, even when sometimes it feels like the world has gone mad. Luke unpacks this. Jesus reveals the brokenness, the alienation, the injustice. He shows how easy it is for some of us to become self-righteous and how simply it becomes that the oppressed can turn around in some places around the world and become the oppressors in just a year. And even more sadly, the inability or sometimes the downright unwillingness to live in the possibilities of a better way. The Bible calls this sin. It calls it evil. But maybe except for outside of here, for inside here, we're too sophisticated to use those terms for anything more than terrorists that we don't want to understand. But certainly, we don't want to think that we contributed to the brokenness and the alienation that's resulted in the conflicts of the Middle East the poverty in the global south, or even the poverty and the homelessness in our own streets here in Toronto, where human trafficking and homelessness takes place right under our nose. The birth of Jesus interrupts this illusion. And maybe that's why 
we should have felt the irony, but at the same time, the hope. You see, that's what Simeon is calling us to. It's literally an exclamation of praise. This Jesus, he says, will be a sign. It will show us that there is another May. He meant it for all of time. We maybe have managed to minimalize it to just a few weeks, but for we who call Jesus Lord, it is inescapable. It disallows our business as usual lives. It shatters the silence. It shatters the illusion. And it points us to a better way and a better hope. We are Christmas people all the time. Again, Coburn catches it. There are those who know about this miracle birth. The humblest of people catch a glimpse of their worth, for it isn't to the palace that the Christ child comes, but to shepherds and to street people, hookers and bums. And the message is clear, if you've got ears to hear, that forgiveness is given for your guilt and your fear. It's a Christmas gift you don't have to buy. There's a future shine in the baby's eye. And that's what I want to say to you on your first chapel back. In the midst of all that has happened over these last weeks, Simeon is calling us to imagine with Jesus the surprise of another way to live. And then to live into the silence of the world around us with those God-like possibilities. Like, I don't know what you're going to do when you leave this place. Some of you will go on to graduate school. Some of you will go to some occupation and work in the marketplace and business. Some of you will go to pastoral ministry. But I'm asking you this. Do you have the imagination? You see, I don't even know what you are all doing now, for that matter, about your faith and about who you are as a person of faith. But in these last four weeks, the thing that has struck me the most is that if I think I can drift through life with a kind of homogenized, pasteurized faith without any revolutionary edge or heart that doesn't say that there is something radically different to live out in this world, then I'm probably wasting my time. One of my other favorite writers, a woman theologian, says, we must learn to say to the darkness, I beg to differ. To speak to the darkness and to say, I beg to differ. Well, this is how Nelba Marquise Green, who actually was a mother of one of the children, who were killed. She's from Winnipeg. Her son, her husband is a, was a professor at the University of Manitoba, a deep person of faith. This is what she wrote after her six-year-old daughter was killed. 
It was a promise to her daughter. My Christmas to you now, my Christmas promise to you now, is to continue to love the Lord with all my heart, with all my mind, and my strength. And I promise you that I will do whatever I can to make sure more kids can be safe. And I promise this, to live by sending out the message that love, God, wins. We used to do uh, fest. I don't know if you've ever done festal shouts. We used to do these in my church when I pastored in Edmonton. It was a way of speaking into the darkness. I want you to stand with me as we close. I entitled this A Festal Shout of Defiance. In a world which seems at times to have gone mad, we seek you, God of glory and creation. We seek to make sense of all that is around us and in need of your healing and redemptive love. We acknowledge your sovereignty and the activity in the world and your desire to multiply its light and redemptive possibilities through us. Okay, now we've got to do this again. Um, this is what we call a festal show. Okay. We acknowledge your sovereignty and activity in the world and your desire to multiply its light and redemptive possibilities through us. We are a people. We are the people of light. Into the darkness that seeks to enfold us, we cry out as the people of God. Into the chaos around us, we cry out as the people of God. We beg to differ. As our world continues to war and battle, we cry out as the people of God. We beg to differ. In a world of inequality and sin and evil, we cry out as the people of God. We beg to differ. With confidence and assurance, we seek to live in the life-giving knowledge. The Lord God reigns. Hallelujah. 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 Amen. Amen. Go and live like it. <laughs>